Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations overcome the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, Lena Reinhardt, who is a speaker, writer, and founder of Lena Reinhardt Leadership Coaching and Consulting. Previously, Lena served as a VP of Engineering with CircleCI and Travel CI, and as well as a startup co-founder and CEO. Lena joins us today from Berlin, Germany. Lena Reinhardt, we're so glad to have you join us on Maintainable. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So as you reflect on your experience in our industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of, dare I say, well-maintained software? I think well-maintained software serves your business goals. It's continuously improved, not just reactively. Actually maintainable in the sense that you have the organization, the skills, the teams, the visibility, knowledge to actually know what's going on there and what you need to improve. And then there's the last point where I'm not actually entirely sure if so well-maintained by definition is even possible as a label for software, or if that's sort of just a constant aspiration that we're all chasing after, but that's probably for later. <laughs> you know, one of the things you, you mentioned there in terms of continuously improving is that primarily are you focused, would you say that's about the the tech itself or is there a safe assumption that you say that there's probably an overlap of that and the continuous development and improvement of the engineering team themselves? Probably. <laughs> I would say that, um, of course, like as the software evolves, either you have a team that keeps evolving with it and that is able to sort of kind of stay ahead of the curve in terms of what you need in, in skill sets and capabilities. If your team isn't capable of doing that, you probably need to bring in other people. But yeah, it's kind of a joint and conjunct evolution. And that point you just made around maybe needing to bring in someone with those skill sets already. You know, it's interesting. I work in the consulting space myself. I run a, a software agency. And one of the things that I've often encountered when working with different teams where they have their own software engineering team and they may be asking us to come in for a period of time. It's usually like, can you come in and help us code stuff? And I'm like, yeah, we can come in and help you with that specific outcome. But is that the only thing you're really looking for? Because it also seems like some companies are like hoping like, oh, that'll just help us get more product features done or you know, ship stuff quicker, faster, what have you. But I think one of the things I've also seen is like there's hesitation from some teams to bring in external people because they're not going to have the context of what they're dealing with and they'd rather kind of promote within their organization. And so you get all these people that have been there for a while. They don't necessarily have some of the skills that you might get from someone coming in that already has those skills. How do you help teams kind of like kind of weigh those options up in terms of like, should we bring in some external help temporarily, long-term? Do we hire managers or do we promote people within the organization to be managers because they were individual contributors and they're really great at that, but knowing that that's also a different career change as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like there's there's a couple different parts baked into that. Like one is definitely the sort of promote from within and how do you create the leadership roles. I do think ultimately it's all about a balance. Like, I, can, I do think it can be quite helpful to have some people who you grow into roles. And I'm also a big believer in sort of making that career trajectory a possibility and especially not just making it a possibility for your best and most technically skilled engineers because 
like forcing people into, and you mentioned it, it's a different career path, but forcing people into a career path that's not theirs and that they're not interested in, it's never a good idea. And especially if they don't feel like they have a choice because it's the only way for them to get a next level visibility, more money and whatever else may come with it. On the flip side, though, I also think it can, especially in, in leadership roles, it can be very advantageous to bring in external people, at least like some of the time, just because especially if you're growing really fast as an organization or you have really ambitious goals, you would need people who can essentially hit the ground running. And one of the biggest problems that I see in organizations is that people get bogged down at a level of context that's too low for them. And that also means... If now you bring in new people below you, you hire managers or you promote people from within, they're going to need support. They're not going to be able to just create their own role um, and sort of hit, yeah, hit the ground running. Of course, if you're really lucky and if they're really good, that might be the case. But normally it's going to take some time, which also means it's going to eat at your own capacity to like focus at higher level topics to work on strategy. And I do think the question is somewhat similar when it comes to how to upskill your technical teams or your engineering teams because a lot of companies don't make a lot of time for knowledge transfer actual learning and by actual learning i mean not just sending people at conferences once a year but having them sort of do retros regularly have space to build those learnings into their day-to-day -day work follow up on incident reviews, um, actually have a capacity for maintaining the software they're building for addressing tech debt. And that kind of learning is something that I believe needs to be as much of an institutionalized thing and a structured thing as possible because the organization needs to create space for that and not make it sort of an individual problem for people to solve. That also means, of course, that bringing people in to help some solve some problems can be really great. Um, the one question that I always ask people is, how are you going to make sure that the effects of that are sustained in your organization? So like, for example, is if you have some senior people coming in, are they going to mentor the people on your team um, and vice versa? Are those people going to onboard them onto the existing systems to give them the context that's needed there? Um, how are the external people going to ultimately transfer the knowledge, experience and also instincts that they have? Instincts are also really important like to the people who are there so that you can sustain that and ultimately you don't just get the effect that you have with poorly managed sort of outsourcing or support projects where basically people come in, they do the quote unquote easy work and then run away as fast as they can and leave everyone else who sort of remains behind with a bunch of mess to fix. And that's not fun or productive or actually really helpful for anyone else. Um, and so I do think that's sort of how do we sustain this? How do we actually make this beneficial in the long run is a really sticky question there. It is the how how are some of these like instincts gonna kind of rub off on other people on the team, and you also mentioned like making space for teams or how you're growing the team themselves rather than just the individuals as well. How do you like with like an engineering manager that has like a team of let's say like ten engineers, like in what sort of ways do you see that sort of manifesting or like ideally between like hey this is the team what where would you see the separation between a team goal versus like are you producing enough code on the individual level? Are you going down rabbit holes, like what have you, versus like on that team dynamic level? Well, and, and is uh, producing enough code also a good metric? That's a whole other question. <laughs> um, so I 
firmly believe that software, building software is a team sport and is not something that can be done sustainably with individual heroics. And that also means that I love the distinction you made between sort of the team as an entity and the individual. I do think both are important. And I think when it comes to like individual development, there's been a lot of work done Like when it comes to saying, okay, managers should build relationships, first of all, with their reports. Same, by the way, also for technical leads, um, for staff engineers or others of more leadershipy individual uh, contributor roles on the team. And the relationship is the foundation. Then there's setting clear goals and expectations. Um, there's you know, holding people accountable, giving feedback on a regular basis, um, understanding where people want to grow. It's like having some sort of development plan or career path outlined. And then, of course, as a manager, also providing people with opportunities, or like at least pointing them in a direction to say, hey, here's, here's where you want to grow. Now, of course, in my experience, the best software doesn't get built by individuals, it gets built by strong teams. And so in order to foster that, like one big part is still the relationships and not just having this one-to-one relationship as a manager with your direct report, but also facilitating that people build relationships among each other. So like people get to know each other. You can do that. Like some teams like icebreaker exercises, other teams play Minecraft together, others do the New York Times crossword, like whatever it's your boat. There are a lot of different ways that works that works for people. Some teams also hate sort of really socializing. And so it's more about you know designing meetings in a way where they can also connect a little bit with one another. Um, so that's one part. I think the relationships are crucial. The other part is just the collaboration. There's of course always this somewhat sticky balance between like how much do you sort of avoid collaboration as a requirement in the sense that like your software delivery process probably shouldn't depend on it. If it does, that's a bit of an issue, but at the same time, encouraging people through saying, okay, we're going to do a lot of teams that I've ran have relied a lot on pair programming um, for like mentoring, co-learning, but also again, the relationship aspect. I think another is the teams learning together part um, that you alluded to earlier. Like, I'm a firm believer in retrospectives, facilitating those well, like as a team having open conversations about how do we work together? What's working for us? What what isn't? And making sure there's a space for everyone. I also think team norms can be really helpful, like having um, working agreements between teams around logistics, like what hours are we working or something like, I love the Lettuce Pact as a tool, which is like a small tool for like giving each other feedback as a team and sort of a team agreement to set some rules around that. And Similarly, like as a team, having a very clearly shaped mission and vision can also be super helpful because, again, like it's about connecting as people, understanding where you're going, and that's where the mission and vision come in, and then moving in that direction together. And that's the last part where I would say like having some clear, like decent planning process. It honestly doesn't matter if it's Scrum or Kanban or whatever. But like having some way of making sure, okay, we know what we're doing and I, as an individual person on this team, understand how my work contributes to the bigger goals that we have as an organization. And I do think these mechanisms together with especially this joint learning part, but also giving each other feedback, being open and honest with each other are big foundations. And then you can just look at the the research on high-performing teams and you're basically at that. Interesting. The, I'm, I'm curious... How would you define what a team is? <laughs> wow. <laughs> I, mean, I, yeah. I, I asked that because I, I think 
you know, maybe I'll get some free advice from you here on this. But one of the things that I struggle with as running like a consultancy, we, we work with a lot of different clients in parallel. And so we have people kind of jumping a couple of different client projects every week. And we've had internal conversations. We've, we've been reading, you know, our leadership team has read dynamic reteaming and we're like, okay. And then we're like going through this and there's this interesting rub of being like, well, when, when, how many different teams are there on our, in our organization? Is it go down to the client level or is it specifically like we have the engineering team, but we've got these like subset client projects that not everybody works on and like winner teams, teams and not different teams. And so how do you help teams kind of understand when there are different different teams? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love this question, especially because I've encountered different flavors of this as well in my career. Like, for example, just very simple, like is a product manager for a team a member of the team? Are they somewhere outside? What does that mean? Or similarly with, like, if you have cross-functional teams, if you have designers working with or more data scientists, data analysts, um, I think the question is quite similar. And honestly, what I found is that usually the definition doesn't matter as much. What I've usually tried to get to is, like, where's the question coming from? Like, what are people trying to get out of this? And what ultimately is the point that they're trying to get to because of course of course like team is a shorthand for something in most organizations it's a shorthand for group of people who work together permanently on some sort of joint goal and you know you could even ask like is a manager part of the team i would argue they kind of shouldn't be but in some way they also still are so like essentially like get to like what are we trying to answer like when it's about say product manager or with the the engineers that you described to just have different engagement models maybe it's like instead of thinking about defining the term team because that of course like it's a term that's been used quite a lot and a lot of people have different associations with it like we can also look at interfaces like how do we engage with one another like if the product manager if their engagement with the team is essentially that they're like supporting the team in understanding what they're going to work on, helping them understand the why, the context. Um, and they're part of some of the team's routines, like daily stand-ups or retrospectives. Then sure, they may be a member of the team. But that, again, it doesn't matter. What's really interesting is the way that they're engaging with the team and with well, with the people on that in that group. I'm trying to avoid saying team anymore. <laughs> what do you think about it, though? I'm curious. Yeah, it- you know, as I found myself in those some of those conversations in, with my with my leadership team, because that's like its own team as well. And I was like, well, when we're working closely with our clients, are we forgetting that the client is part of the team? You know, and like that, like our primary contact there. You know, so there's this interesting thing. I'm like, they're the ones organizing the things that they want to accomplish with their software. They're kind of like the product owner on their end, and. So it's just interesting, like, but we're we're not we're like their team rather than like we're a team together, and that's initially. And those people sometimes swap out. And so, how do we think about how we transition people coming in and out of those organ those groups? But I think you make a really good point that like team is just shorthand, like most I guess all all words are uh, shorthand for something, right? What are we What are we trying to say here? And maybe I was trying to be a little too um, pedantic. I think maybe in my conversations with my teammates on that, I'm like, no, 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 we've got like everybody's on twenty different teams here. It seems like. At the, by the idea that there's people that come together for a period of time. I think it's also interesting because one of the things that I think is important for engineering teams is some is some level of longevity. Like I do think 
like ramping a team in the sense of like building the relationships, helping them define common practices and getting to a good mode of working together and ultimately being productive, that takes time. And if you have constantly sort of people swapping in and out of this team, it's going to be really hard to sustain a certain pace and ultimately certain outcomes that the team is looking to achieve. So I do think, especially from a sort of software development angle and how like what makes teams productive angle, I would also say like a team is a socially, like as a social group that's working together longer term, that know each other, that have shared like work practices and not just a shared mission. And that's where, you know, to your question, I would say, well, potentially you and your teammates aren't part of the teams and maybe even shouldn't be and should do your best to not become part of the teams in the team definition as like the social construct with longevity and rather figure out sort of what can our interface be in a way where we provide the things that this team needs from us without sort of becoming part of the the close-knitted group that you might ultimately want from a team. Of course, if it's a three-year engagement, that's a different conversation. But like, if we're just talking about sort of people going in and out like on a weekly basis or so, again, we're back at the interfaces. We'll be back with our interview with Lena in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I just wanted to take a moment to say thank you so much for listening to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers and or writing a review on Apple Podcasts to help spread the word. Feel free to do it right now. Why don't you post a link to it on your LinkedIn and say, hey, I enjoy listening to Maintainable. Uh, if you post a review somewhere, maybe send me an email, Robbie at maintainable.fm. That's Robbie with a Y. And let me know. And I would love to send you a thank you gift. It could just be an email that says thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. One of the things about being a podcast host is it's kind of quiet and lonely sometimes. So feel free to reach out and let me know. I really appreciate it when I get a shout out on social media or a little email in my inbox. So thank you. And now let's get back to our interview with Elena Reinhardt. One of the things that you know we often talk with guests about is about technical debt, and it's something that you mentioned earlier on about teams finding time for that. First of all, maybe like, do you find using the metaphor technical debt useful with within organizations, or what's what's your take on that at the moment? I feel like that's stepping into a hot debate that's been long, it's <laughs> been running for twenty years, and now I'm coming in and adding my hot take. I think honestly it's probably similar to the term team that we were just talking about it's and kind of even worse because it has very strong implications it's an exceptionally loaded term at this point technical debt especially and i don't think it's particularly useful because of course the way debt works i have a background in finance coincidentally <laughs> um so the way debt works and how it's accrued and whatnot is I don't think necessarily a helpful way of talking about the software development. At the same time, it's also a term that's been around for a while and we probably won't get rid of it. But yeah, I haven't found another that I think is particularly more useful. I'm not sure. You've talked to a bunch of people. Have you found one? Not really. I think outside of like separating the difference between like when people, when people, I don't think we're going to get rid of the scenario of engineers using it as a metaphor because they hear about it and they read about it. And I don't think it's necessarily harmful, but I, I think it's like, what do people mean by it? And sometimes I find that there's people that will use it to describe 
something that they don't agree with. <laughs> you know, like I don't agree with the way this was done. This should have been done a different way. This would make my life better if it was done this way. Um, and that kind of maybe lacks some empathy for what the constraints were of the people that previously worked on it and such. But I do think there is a, there's a, the squishy area around like the product team is kind of like we're going off they have this vision of where we're going and maybe there's been some concessions being made over time and we're like, okay, we're going to have to come back and maybe revisit this at some point. And does that, does that sometime ever materialize on its own is a question that I think a lot of organizations might face. And a lot of developers will say, well, I've brought it up a couple times and they said, not right now, a few times. And so they stop asking about it, you know, because they're like, well, okay, and they're, they're never going to approve us taking a couple weeks to do something else to make my life better as, you know, to improve my habitat of code and such. So what are, what are you, and I don't think that's the case in all teams by, by any means. I think there's a lot of good, healthy teams that are able to, to figure out how to manage that in a lot of different flavors and, and styles. What have you seen work well with one, the first question being, what are effective ways of like raising those topics, regardless of whether or not you brought it up in the past to product and or leadership teams or whoever you need to go to for, you know, a thumbs up on, on, on investing some time doing those things? I do think there are probably at least two parts that I would think about this. The one is the preemptive part. Like what decisions can we make now as a gift to our future selves to at least decrease or contain the amount of tech debt that we are accruing? Because like, I don't believe there's such thing as like no tech debt. It's probably just the tech debt you haven't found yet. <laughs> Or it's just the yeah the stuff you aren't aware of, and the other side is the reactive or the well, reactive, and then there's of course also the cleanup part. And it's probably the third basket, and so in the preemptive side, I do think a lot of what it boils down to is to creating a joint understanding of what are we even talking about when we're talking about tech debt, and what does that entail. And oftentimes it's even just the, oh, we're going to make a shortcut right here because we're on a, in a rush and we want to get this thing out the door, but we will clean it up later, like those kinds of things. And of course they, they pile up over time. And I've been running a lot of product engineering teams and departments. And so one of the biggest parts of my job used to be just getting product on the same page with that, because I do think... And that's probably going to get me a lot of hate somewhere, but I do feel like a big part of tech debt and how we talk and think about it is that there is still in many organizations this clear distinction between basically what engineering does and what product does. And ultimately the question of what is a product even. Um, so I've worked in a lot of SaaS companies. Of course, it's very different if you're building hardware or something else. But in the case of SaaS, I would at this point make the case, at least from a philosophical perspective, everything that the customer experiences is our product. And that includes the stuff that's not working, the performance issues, the um, things that were on the will fix later list. And I do think that joint understanding that like ultimately it's about the experience we're creating for the customer not who put which item on the backlog because like a customer doesn't care about that and they don't even see it. I do think that's a big starting point. And the next part of this is actually getting to an agreement of how we're investing. Like I've worked with 
with investment guidelines quite a bunch. So like basically setting not targets, but guidelines with like, okay, we want to have, for example, 60% features, 20% tech debt and maintenance capacity, or 30% and then 10% buffer for escalations, bugs that come up. Um, whatever these guidelines here are, it's going to vary even between sort of a Series A and Series D startup. But having a joint agreement, because I found that a lot of the conflicts around TED debt also arise at the team level when there is no clarity at the organizational level of essentially how do we want to invest. And that means that a lot of engineers have to battle this out on a week by week basis. And then, as you mentioned, you know, at some point they stop bringing it up because they're like, well, doesn't make a difference anyway, so why should I? And so having that agreement at the high level for the organization, I think is great. Um, it's not going to be a thing that you use to plan your backlog week by week. But the ultimate idea behind is that overall, as an organization in the big picture over a quarter, for example, this is roughly where we want to get. And you can use this in your planning. Um, for example, if you're then using OKR smart goals for your quarterly planning, you can already factor in, okay, here's the percentage of capacity that we want to allocate to technical investments that we're making. So I do think in this in this preparation and in ultimately being on the same page with like our product is everything the customer sees and here's how we choose to invest as an organization because we believe it's important. I think it lays a really important foundation. Interesting. The sometimes wonder about the the allocation percentages is and I'm like not all teams necessarily like maybe track their time like logging their hour. I mean I work in agency space we do that because that's how we make money by charging our by our hours but but for other teams they're like you know we don't track time necessarily so is it a matter of how does that look like in a within like say a sprint or something you're like well we've got x number of points that we're trying to accomplish and we see or story points and we've got these other tickets in in jira or whatever we're using and like these are bugs and we're trying to squeeze them into the same sprint or is there a percentage of people that are currently focused on reactive bug fixing type work and so we're like two out of ten people are doing that the other eight are focusing on features like wh where do you see that work well mm -hmm. um so i've actually never used it with time tracking before <laughs> so one way that i've seen teams do it is, is the rotation that you mentioned it's like having a monthly bi-weekly however long it is um, rotation for one or two engineers who are then dedicated to triage, bug resolution, and also like longer term things that are on the team's horizon. The other thing I've seen is just basically using um, ticket breakdowns, like either then in association with story points, um, if the team is using a practice like that, or basically at the task level, like dependent. Of course, there is an assumption behind that in how the team breaks down work and in sort of right sizing. You can also associate with t-shirt sizes if that's your thing. Um, ultimately, basically the idea is to get to somewhat comparable pieces of work um, that are somewhat the same size. And again, like it's ultimately, I think these kinds of things are mostly a tool to have the right conversations in the same way as story points or yeah t-shirt sizes are ways to talk a way to talk about the things that are important and that also means like, it's something that of course comes with some ambiguity but if you use i think you can even use just plain ticket counts and things like that in jira of course it's tied to jira um, but i'm sure other tools can do it too i don't like jira either but we use what we have and um yeah, use that as a way to basically just get a big picture um, because it's so easy to get lost. And then again, like, make sure you're having preemptive 
or planning conversations already about how you're going to invest in just, instead just always doing it retroactively. Right, right. That makes sense. You know, and one of the other topics I wanted to dig in with you is around, is it a safe assumption that you've worked with some teams that have gone down the path of, say, using microservices and using a microservice architecture? Because I feel like in the industry, there's been these waves of like, that was a thing for a while. And if I've noticed a lot of guests talking, well, that didn't quite work out the way we thought it would. First question is, what's your experience been? And then the follow-up question would be, what are some things that people might want to ask themselves before they go down that path? So my experiences and my opinions are probably a bit mixed overall. I do feel like there was a bit of a um, our Lord and Savior microservices kind of a thing for a while. And that just, as you were just saying, just didn't entirely come true. I've worked with a bunch of teams that have used microservices in some shape or form. Some were a bit more greenfield. Others were dealing with some legacy elements like monoliths that were kind of still part of the microservice architecture. I feel like we're still lacking the proper terminology for that. <laughs> is it then microservice? I don't, I don't entirely know. But I would say the biggest part is that I'm a systems person, like both from a people and technical perspective. And for me, I found the biggest challenge is always that ultimately it's the question, how are people going to get stuff done in this? That's it's not the technical term to use for it, but it's a really fundamental question and one where I've seen most organizations really struggle because ultimately you get to an architecture where you have a ton of dependencies. No team can actually do things in isolation and on their own autonomously. And that's where you suddenly get a huge degree of complexity. And that's something I've seen a lot of teams deal with. I would say, since your question was about how to preempt that or what things to think about, I would say basically, how are we going to work on this together is probably the biggest one. Because if ultimately you end up having a microservice architecture but you have the same workflows that you used to have with a monolith, just that people are now committing to different repos and still have to approve stuff because they kind of depend on what's coming in upstream. You don't really have any of the benefits of the microservice architecture and potentially even losing the benefits of the monolith as well. And so this whole, I do understand why from a technical perspective, it can be absolutely, it can make a lot of sense to move to microservices, but ultimately you will need to have people working on this and you will need to have a growing organization contribute to this. And that's usually where things break down in some way. And that kind of, you know, kind of leads me to another topic I wanted to dig into. Like at this point in time in the industry, there's been a lot of organizations that have been having or downsizing and having layoffs and such. And so teams had been growing pretty quickly for a couple of years. And now they're, you know, in some ways there's been a bit of uh, a reduction in, in team sizes. So are certain patterns like this, they're like, well, if this, if we keep growing like this, we're going to need to take advantage of of patterns like this, but do you feel like teams often have conversations of like, but when it, what happens if we have to then have less people on the team in the future? Because it's not going to just, you know, infinitely keep growing forever and ever and ever, right? There's going to be a point where we stop growing, we're going to pause hiring. Maybe a company will stay static at a current size than it is, but I don't know if that's ever the case. So at some point you're going to retract a little bit. How, how can teams plan for that effectively knowing whether or not they may not be there themselves, you know? And so that's like an interesting personal challenge I think that some people have as well. 
I do think that ultimately thinking about how to do the right thing but do it better so basically work on efficiency for your team is really important for all teams and should be something that teams think about no matter what stage we're in no matter what the bigger trends of the industry are so that's the one part and I'll talk a little bit about how to do that in a second there's the other part though that I just want to call out real quick which is that a lot of the layoff decisions that happened were based on executives basically taking larger risks than they probably should have um, there's like a lot of companies overhired money was like VC money was exceptionally cheap over the last couple of years. And a lot of companies were also really inflated in their valuations. Many companies, I mean, even at least Tobi Lutke of Shopify said it like, explicitly and said, hey, we took a risk because we didn't want to be the ones who didn't take the risk. If basically things had paid out, had paid off and things had moved into the along the lines of the same trends that, for example, e-commerce companies had during the, during the pandemic. So essentially the part that I just wanted to call out there is that usually there is, in times of high growth, there's a lot of pressure on teams to like keep hiring, keep delivering. Teams are very sort of heads down in that. And those are usually, in my experience, not necessarily the times when teams are sort of actually then taking the space to sit down and say, well, how would we do this if suddenly all of this changed? I do think a big part of that is, again, an organizational issue where companies need to make sure that they're still creating space for this big maintenance work and for actually giving people space to learn to learn from each other. Like the bus factor tends to go really up as well in these times of high growth when suddenly they, there's not a lot of space for knowledge transfer anymore. You have people who have other sole knowledge holders in certain areas. So yeah, that's basically the more organizations need to think about this a bit more and probably stop as much of pattern matching as we've been seeing over the industry over the last half year. Um, I do think the other part, though, I did want to touch on around how to think about this, how to do this as a team. I think, again, like having some sort of agreement, even if it's if there's no guidelines for investing at your organizational level, if there's no breakdown, like, hey, we want a distribution of X percent features versus maintenance, you can still get to something like that at your team level, like talk to your product people, or of course, if you're a platform team, work with your stakeholders internally and like, figure out how you're going to invest. I think another part is also, again, just in the planning, making sure that there's space for, for technical investments, for maintenance work. I do think the third part, though, that I would encourage all teams to do is just basically learn to speak with non-engineers about the work that you think should be done. I know that's a topic that some engineers like don't really want to get into um, or just aren't a big fan of. And I understand that as someone who comes more from the business side, I have great sympathies for not wanting to talk to people in suits. <laughs> but I've also found that a lot of the breakdown around sort of technical debt investments that need to happen and ultimately like, what is the company getting out of the money that they're paying their engineering teams, a lot of that breakdown comes from engineering teams and the rest of the business not understanding each other well. And so I see there is a very extreme case of essentially engineers saying, hey, we we want to do this because we say so and because we know it's important. I don't think anyone really does that. Um, that's a very extreme way to put it. But basically, what is the business impact of this initiative that you're proposing? How is this going to impact our users? 
What are we hoping to see in terms of revenue improvements, in terms of performance improvements? Like find some numbers to attach to whatever you're putting forth. You will probably have to make some of those up because you probably won't have access to everything that you need to convey or you will have to say, hey, I'm, go I'm going to have to make some guesses here because we don't have all the data available. You can put that in there. But like, ultimately, a lot of the teams, especially in product teams, um, have to balance like the work that product managers put forth in terms of their features and whatnot, which are usually exceptionally quantified. Like Product managers talk to users. They understand at least the assessment of what they're putting forth in terms of here's what we're expecting and how many users will adopt this or how many people asked for it and whatnot. And then we come around the corner. I've definitely been guilty of this myself and say, well, here's something that should improve performance by X maybe, but we don't actually know. We just think it's important or it's important for scalability. That's of course always a great argument. Um, but like helping people actually understand like what does this mean? How much work is involved? How are we going to see incrementally if we're making progress? And I also know that like breaking down larger initiatives into smaller chunks takes a lot of work itself, but there is so much value in actually having these conversations. And so I do think to your question about um, how can teams make sure that they are prepared for these kinds of changes? I think like knowing the language and speaking that language is a huge factor. Hmm. I, I, I like those those recommendations there. Do you also advocate for engineers to, I'm not say pad their estimates, but at least think about, you know, when they're thinking like they're trying to size something up, I mean like to do things like quickly versus like well you know like whatever quality of like of like in an ideal scenario there might be these different there's some spectrum there and then whether or not that actually manifests when you're working on it and if things run longer you might have to make some concessions but what, what what's general advice that you t typically tell people that you work with i've worked with exceptional engineers and if i ask 10 of them, how they would define a quick version versus a well-done version. I'm pretty sure it at least see 12 different versions of that. And not because they're bad engineers, just because they have very different ways of thinking and operating. And so I do think one big part in this is essentially like having some tough conversations internally, because like some people are firm believers in doing things, quote unquote, really well and doing them exceptionally scalable. But at the same time, you may not need that. But also, does that mean you should just throw something over the wall and then run the other way every time? No, that's not the case either. So I do think there's a hefty dose of pragmatism and a very clear conversation about what exactly do we want? What exactly do we need right now versus what trade-offs can we make that we can ultimately like live with because they they fit into what we're trying to do? And I I do think having those conversations is ultimately it. I don't think there is one sort of one size fits all definition for how to get that done. Hi there. We hope you're enjoying this week's episode of Maintainable. While you've been listening, has anyone crossed your mind who might be looking for help with their Ruby on Rails application? Planet Argon, the producer of Maintainable podcast, would love to meet them. In fact, we've got a pretty sweet referral bonus program set up. If you send someone our way and they sign up for Planet Argon Services, we'll give them a $1,000 discount. And your reward? We'll send you $1,000 just for connecting us to the right person. Sounds like a win-win for everyone. Head on over to planetargon.com forward slash referrals for more info. That's planetargon.com forward slash referrals. 
All right, let's get back to this week's episode. Circling back to the topic of, you know, companies like make, taking their risk and maybe over hiring for a while. And now we're in a scenario where you're seeing teams being, you know, 10% or give or take of, of an engineering team might be gone now. And then, so there's a couple of things. One, for those that are still there at their organization, they, they weren't part of that 10%. And I know there's people that are like now thinking, oh no, like if there's another round, am I going to be part of it? Should I start looking for a new job and get out ahead of this? Because now, and so there's this interesting thing where I've, I've had, I, I have conversations with the developer, with some developers that are thinking, now they're starting to put a foot out the door a little bit, right? Which is tough place to feel like you're in. And then there's some animosity towards the organization starts to maybe develop. And then there's the people that are like, I want to keep my job. I like what I do here. I'm really great at it. I want to keep working here in the, for the long run, regardless of you know what happens. And so for those like in that space of being like thinking about knowledge transfer from people that they didn't have an opportunity to do that with that just left. And now they're thinking, well, if I'm going to potentially leave in the near future, or I'm going to, or the other person's like, I want to stick around for a long time. What are some good, healthy things you think teams should be doing right now outside of just being like, put our heads down and just keep pushing away and crossing our fingers that we're not, you know, we don't get laid off in some other round later in the year or something? Well, I think it's it's really tough right now. And I also think survivorship bias in the sense of like feeling guilty that you weren't laid off or that you're the ones who've left behind right now. And then also being scared if like the next person might be you. Like that's all very real and a lot of people are dealing with this. I would say it's a good time to look at essentially how is your team working. Um, a friend of mine, Tiana de Burka, wrote a couple of weeks ago that um, basically tough times are an opportunity for great engineering work because there are a lot of areas where your team can potentially do good work that's going to help the company longer term. Of course, you may not feel super great about your company right now because you're annoyed that they laid people off or the, about the risk they took. And that's entirely fair as well. I don't want to talk anyone out of that. Like those things probably have to coexist for a while. And just being cognizant of that can also be like a way to deal with that in terms of the sort of operating as a team. I wrote an article a couple months ago. We can probably put that in the show notes about sort of leading for or running teams for efficiency. One thing that I always recommend for a tech lead or an engineering manager to start with is essentially do an assessment of the team and not in the sense of like who should stay or go, because many companies have already made those decisions, but in the sense of where do we have space to optimize? Like, for example, what is the software that we don't regularly use anymore that we can probably shut down? What are What is the infrastructure cost that we're incurring through the way that we've architected our system or by the way that we're using some services, like check with your platform teams or your infrastructure partner teams about that. Look into like what tasks could you potentially automate? Like where's the toil in the way that you're working where you have things that just keep coming up every week or every month that could just be automated away. Another is also in how are you collaborating both internally as well as with your stakeholders. Like for example, a lot of teams in these high growth times used to have like four or five quote unquote focus areas, which obviously is not how focus works. But like I do think there is a lot of value in limiting work in progress to make sure that you're actually focusing and that you're able to demonstrate progress very quickly. 
in conjunction with that, also increasing visibility drastically. So making sure your product your product partners understand where you're at, that your boss's boss and whoever is if you're rolling up to in the organization, that they know where things are at, what the risks are, how you're doing overall. And so basically with this combination of like understanding how you're doing, working to improve your practices and making that hyper visible in your organization, basically actively managing out, um, not just what you're doing, but also helping people understand that. That's interesting. The, you know, you mentioned limiting work in progress. How does that look like? And if you're a team that's working, say in a scrum fashion, you've got, does that mean like, we're going to have less story points now because we've got a smaller team that might seem pretty obvious, but, uh, but is it going to be like, let's focus on less areas as a team or like, can you give me like a tangible example there? I mean, honestly, in my experience with many teams, it starts with goal setting. There's, I've, I've been talking a lot about strategy and tactics uh, over the last half year and gave some talks about that. And one of the things I always say is that strategy is also an at least implicit commitment to what you're not doing. And a lot of organizations in the last couple of years have had a lot of trouble with saying no to anything um, in the pursuit of just any opportunity that came along and the way that often showed up with teams and I've seen that a lot over the last year especially is that teams would just have like three or four OKRs for a quarter sometimes more um, and that's too many OKRs it's not like and no matter what framework you use but if you have a team of seven or eight people and they have three or four areas they want to have impact in over the course of 12 weeks in best case that's just not going to work and so I do think there is a lot that's about discipline in like actually understanding what are the things where we think we can create real value both from a sort of product and feature perspective but also with the technical investments that we want to make and having those conversations before you start the work because what i've seen a lot happen is the teams set just too many goals can't accomplish them and then in the end they're not achieving everything but that means they're not making explicit choices about what's not getting done they're just letting essentially fate and their own productivity decide and that's not a great habit and at the same time of course it means you're, you're going to struggle in showing actual progress of your work um, it's like focusing like narrowing down how many goals you're setting but also again limiting how many tickets you have just in progress in your board like it might be two it might be one depending on your team size it might also be three but not trying to keep a ton of balls in the air because then we're back to context switching as well and context switch as we all know is very expensive another thing you can look at to limit work in progress is to just like contain meetings like i'm not a big proponent of the let's kill all meetings approach necessarily i know it's another hotly debated topic but like look at how are we co coordinating as a team can we make this a bit easier can we just create more focus time or more flow time so we can actually get things done instead of, sort of spending a lot of time talking unless the time is really valuable then you should keep it um so i think there's a lot that basically boils down to it depends on how your team works but just basically try to do fewer things is probably it no and i feel like that's a, an important thing for teams to try to revisit on them regardless of whether or not you've just your team is shrunk or something recently. It's it's one of those, I find it difficult to not just keep being like, oh, we can do all these things in parallel. We got to keep all these, it's like we start a new process. We got to keep that process going consistently, but like, it's not easy to be like, let's just stop doing it for like three or six months. So sometimes those things just stop happening anyways, because they're not a priority. We just didn't explicitly 
convey that that was a decision. You're like, I, I guess I stopped prioritizing that because it didn't seem valuable anymore. Um, and it's okay to, to do that. I also struggle with that sometimes where it's like, I'm like, oh no, I'm like failing to do something because I committed to doing this eight months ago and I did it for like three months solid, but maybe I subconsciously lost sight of why I thought it was valuable. It didn't seem to be useful. Maybe nobody, it didn't seem like anyone cared until someone asks about it and you're like, oh shit, what did I do? I forgot yeah. about that. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I, th- I think that's, you know, the, that point is also really important in that like you're not going to build maintainable software if you're just like, starting too much stuff that then is probably never actually getting finished. And then you have all these sort of cans that you're kicking down the road and the more cans you have, the louder it's going to get. So I think that's another part of it. And of course the temptation is like, I get that. I, I do it as well. Like this, I love starting stuff, but at the same time, I think especially when it comes to then saying, okay, we want to actually be able to respond to change because I'm personally, I'm assuming that over the next one and a half to two years, like we're going to see quite a few bigger changes in the industry. And I do believe that for teams, it's worth not just investing in efficiency right now, but also in basically being prepared and being ready to roll with the punches a bit more than they probably had to, because many companies have been so in this, so focused down on this high growth mode over the last couple of years. And so if you have fewer items that are in progress, it also means you're able to adapt to changes that are coming your way, both organizationally, but also in terms of technical requirements, user requirements, much faster than you otherwise might be. Do you have any advice for listeners on how to how they can potentially best invest in preparing for those un- for unknown changes that are likely to you're predicting might happen. And maybe you know specifically what those things are and, and you have the the magic ball there on your end. But I don't know what that looks like for everybody. And so I think it might be like, well, it's fuzzy. So what do I do? Just try to just bury my head in work and just keep doing a good job day in and day out? Or is it like I need to maybe work on some other skills that would be make me more valuable? for this organization or some other future organization in the future. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, I think if, you know, if like right now you're saying, hey, I want to just bury my head in the work and get stuff done. And that's also fine. We all have limited capacity and you do what works for you. Um, If you do feel like you want to invest in some things, um, one thing I definitely recommend is just keeping an eye on like larger business trends, VC trends, for example. I wrote an article a little while back about the reasoning for or the reasons for all these layoffs. And there's, I think it's a list of like 20 items or something like VC money, but also interest rates are some of them. Others are just sort of how inflated the industry has been over the last couple of years. So I know there have been a couple other articles, I think, since that have dealt with this as well. So like essentially find some factors that you can look out for where you can say, oh, um, I see that interest rates are, for example, rising more in the future and that may have further, they may put further pressure on the VC ecosystem, which then has consequences in how much they're investing in startups. So like understanding those kinds of things can be a bit helpful just to give a bit more orientation. Um, I think another thing you can also do is just, yeah, invest in your own skills. I do think... What I've seen in many organizations is that the more senior you get as an engineer, the more you will spend time not just mentoring people, but then ultimately also talking to the business. And I know I've emphasized this a lot today because it's kind of a bit of the topic that we landed on, but learn to speak with business stakeholders, like start with your product manager, but then also speak maybe with people in the revenue organization, your customer success team, like get to know 
what's on their minds, understand the challenges they're dealing with, what they're hearing from people and learn a little bit more to speak their language and to tell them about the work that you're doing in your organization and how it's impacting the overall business. Because that kind of lingo, it's not hard to learn necessarily, but it's of course a switch and it means translating from you know being used to talking to engineers to talking to people who have very different ways of thinking and working and also different priorities. And I do think that's always worthwhile. And again, as you're, as you, if you may like want to move upwards in your organization, that's going to be a really, really helpful skill. And I think another part is always like keep your CV up to date. Um, I do think personally, I find it valuable to just encourage people to interview at least once a year, even if you're not looking, because keeping interview skills sharp is helpful. Hiring and interviewing in the, in the industry still sucks. And at the moment, it sucks especially hard. And so um, just making sure you have your CV up to date, you have like, your, your resume framed around the impact that your work has had. It's also a good way to spend that time. And then kind of like helping your team, either your tech lead or your manager or so with some of this efficiency work and taking maybe a bit more of a leadership role on your team to helping to help other people wrap their head around this as well are all ways to sort of get involved now. And I do think all of these skills are going to be valuable no matter sort of if you then actually if your company has been doing layoffs or if it's just about sort of thinking a little bit differently about the work that you're doing. No, I, I like that. It's some really solid recommendations there. And it's important, I think, the idea around having people interview. And it's interesting, as some of that, is it a, as an employer of people, I'm like, oh, no, are people on my team interviewing? Probably. They probably are at times. <laughs> and I'm glad that they stick around or they don't. You know, I think that's, it's good for people. It's, it's healthy. And I think I've learned that there's some resiliency that gets built up on like people will leave and that's okay. And that's actually something to be celebrated. Um, and I'm always appreciative of the developers that have invested time in making sure that there's good transition periods for themselves, for the team, and invest in documentation and making things better for the longevity of the software, not for, say, this illusion of job security, you know, of like, well, I'm the, I own this part of the framework or the microservice X and holding your employer hostage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that's not nobody. That's not healthy for anyone. Okay. A couple of quick last questions for you, Lena. One, is there a non-technical, non-software book that you find yourself most often recommending to peers? Oh, I love that. I think it's um, Into the Planet by Jill Heinerth. It's her autobiography. Jill Heinerth is a cave diver and she's one of the, I think, top three cave divers in the world. At least she was by the time she wrote that book. Um, one of her opening lines is that if she ever had sort of a tricky situation or accident while diving there are only two other people in the world who could help her and one of them is her ex-husband um which <laughs> this describes both her level of like profound skill but also the interesting complications that can come with that and it's uh so i'm not a diver i just snorkel uh, so i stay in very shallow waters <laughs> But it's very well written. Um, she also does some underwater photography. So there's some beautiful photos in it. And it's just, it's a world that I had no idea even existed to that degree. She did a lot of work in Florida, for example, as well, where there's a lot of caves. I had no idea that was a thing. It's a beautiful book just about also like relying on each other as a team as you're doing this kind of really extreme and extremely dangerous work. And on, of course, the risks that come with that and how people manage that. Um, so I highly recommend. Nice. I'll definitely include links to that in the show notes for everybody. And where can listeners best follow your thoughts and ruminations on these types of topics online? 
So I have a website, it's lenareinhardt.com, and I write articles there around every week at the moment on different topics around technical and people leadership. I also post on LinkedIn under my name um, because some stuff's been going down at Twitter, so that's a bit less usable currently. <laughs> Has has there been? I, I haven't noticed. Um, yeah, I don't. I mean, I'm I'm not uh, Elon Musk, so that means if I'm posting there right now, you're probably not going to see it anyway. That's at least this week's update. Uh, I am L at LRNRD on Twitter still, um, but yeah, follow at your own risk, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I'll definitely include links to that for everybody, for all those different locations for, for, for our listeners. And with that, it's been such a delight being able to have you come on Maintainable and talk shop with us today, Lena. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Robbie. Oh.